page 983. We're finally moving out of Colossians chapter 1 and into the second chapter. And for those of you that follow along in our uh, pew Bibles, uh, you'll be perhaps glad to know this is the last week that will be on page 983. And next week we'll be able to turn the page and they'll be there for another five or six weeks. So 983 Colossians chapter 2. We are continuing our series through Colossians this morning. Last week we looked at the last five verses of chapter 1 and we saw Paul giving this kind of broad picture of his ministry, his work as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we said that was a ministry that sets a pattern for all Christians and how they are to live their lives and to serve one another. Now in chapter 2, Paul reiterates that the Colossians themselves, the Christians in the city of Colossae, to whom he is writing in this letter, they are part of that apostolic ministry. Though he has never met them or seen them, he nevertheless feels responsible for them. And it is, in fact, in these verses that Paul now directly addresses the problem at Corinth, the whole reason for which he is writing. Uh, up till this point, Paul has certainly had the issues in mind, but he has not explicitly mentioned them. Instead, he has been priming the pump for what he's about to say. He has been laying the groundwork of theology and pastoral concern so that now he can directly address these problems. And again, the reason in part he has done this is because he's never met the Colossians. He's never been there. He's never seen them face to face. And yet he cares for them as part of God's church, as God's people. Because he is an apostle. You remember uh, that Paul was at one time not an apostle. He was in fact a man whose sole desire, his burning conviction in service to God that he believed, and that was to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And yet it was the risen Christ who stopped Paul dead in his tracks, who showed him he was wrong in his understanding and called him to serve not as a persecutor of the church, but as a builder of the church taking the gospel where it had not yet been named among the Gentile peoples of the world. And Paul, grateful for the forgiveness and the salvation that he received, unwaveringly and unhesitantly embraced that call. And so now he is writing even to those Christians that he does not know, and yet he cares for, seeking to address the problem that was before them. He ended the last section explaining how much he struggled and labored and toiled for God's church. And now he says in chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For although I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May God bless the reading of His Word. As we think about this passage... I want us to begin, before you even unpack it, to think about how we're going to apply to our lives what Paul is saying to us here. He is talking about, as I've entitled this message, caring for the church or caring for Christians. And it's no great stretch as we think about caring for Christians and caring for the church to think about those that are sitting next to us, right? Uh, as, as we've said before, and we should continually say, lest we forget, this building is not the church. It is the people gathered together, biblically speaking, that is the church. 
And so as we think about caring for the church, we look around at those sitting next to us. Well, I don't really look around, but you should be looking around. I'm looking at you directly. And this is the church. Those bright, shining, smiley faces, that is the church. And so we're asking, how do we care for them? It's no great stretch to think about uh, those sitting next to you, those in your community group, perhaps other Christians who are not a part of this local church, but a part of the universal church, how to care for them. That should be obvious, but what I want to press you on this morning is that which may not be so obvious. I want you to think about for a few moments with me here the situation that Paul himself was in. Listen again closely to how he starts this section. Chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Think of what Paul's saying here. He says, I am striving, struggling, laboring for you and for others that I've never seen, that I've never met, that I am not friends with in that day. Now, how can he do this? How can Paul struggle for them? Well, to be honest, I kind of made a short list in my mind and there were a lot of things, but the thing that came to me first and the thing that I found other commentaries mentioning is the thing that he already kind of tips his hand at in the first uh, half of chapter 1. And that is this, he prays for them. He prays for them. Now, not many of us would probably characterize our praying as struggle, but Paul did. Paul labored hard in his preaching and public ministry, and he also labored hard in prayer. Paul saw prayer as a struggle, not in the sense that he struggled with prayer, they didn't know how to pray or found it difficult, but rather he struggled, he labored for people in prayer. It was work, it was toil, it was spiritual exercise, the gymnasium of the soul. He never asked God to just do something. You know, that, that word is kind of the, the default word in a lot of our prayers. Well, God, just be with them. Really? Just be with them? Well, that's really what we want them to do. Why do we keep praying? Why do we say anything else? The problem is we don't, we're not aware sometimes of the words that come out of our mouth. Furthermore, Paul's quiet time didn't consist of just a few moments of coffee where he spent half the time apologizing that he didn't pray more. That, that wasn't his life. Like Jacob before him, he wrestled with God in prayer. So in Romans 15, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God. Paul says, my, my, my prayers are characterized by striving, by struggling, by, 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 by reaching out to take hold of the promises of God. And apparently this is how he taught others to pray as well later in the letter. He writes of Epaphras to the Colossians. Remember, he was the one that Paul led to the Lord. He was the one who heard the gospel of Christ from the city of Colossae. And he in turn went back to his hometown and spread the gospel there. And he was also the one, as a leader in that church, who traveled all the way to find Paul and say, there's problems in Corinth, I need your help. Paul says of Epaphras in chapter 4 of this letter, he is a servant of Christ Jesus who was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. We, we could take the rest of our time looking at passage after passage, person after person in the Bible whose prayers could be categorized, who could be described with this word struggle, with fervent toil, not least of which Jesus himself, who perhaps epitomizes this experience of struggling in prayer by his time at Gethsemane, which you can read about later in Luke chapter 22. Likewise, church history is filled with 
people who prayed like this. David Brainerd was a missionary to the American Indians in the early 1700s. We only know about him because he lived for a brief time in his illness with Jonathan Edwards, a very prominent pastor and missionary and for a very short time college president. He edited and published Brainerd's journals. And there we read frequently of him wrestling with God in prayer. For example, part of the entry on Monday, April 19th, 1742, he says this, God enabled me to so agonize in prayer that I was quite wet with sweat, though in the shade and the wind cool. My soul was drawn out very much for the world. I grasped for multitudes of souls. The next day, Brainerd wrote, I think my soul was never so drawn out in intercession for others as it has been this night. Had a most fervent wrestle with the Lord tonight for my enemies. Later he writes, I was enabled to cry to God with, child, with a childlike spirit and to continue instant in prayer for some time. Was much enlarged in the sweet duty of intercession. Was enabled to remember great numbers of dear friends and precious souls as well as Christ's ministers. Continued in this frame, afraid of every idle thought till I dropped asleep. Here was a man who struggled in prayer. A generation before him, Joseph Aline served as a pastor in England. In the mid to late 1600s, his wife wife once wrote of him, at the time of his health, in other words, before he got sick, he did rise constantly at or before four of the clock. That's a.m. And we would be much troubled if he heard smiths, that's metal workers, or other craftsmen at their trades before he was at communion with God, saying to me afterwards, how this noise shames me. Does not my master deserve more than theirs? Now understand, you know, here's the thing. I mean, this guy's a Puritan. They went to bed at like 6 o'clock at night, okay? So to get up, you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning, yeah, that's early, but it's, you know, they had a longer night. But doesn't the principle still hold? He is up before dawn, before the sun rises, that he might wrestle with God in prayer. One last one I've told before. Robert Murray McShane, a pastor in Scotland. Oftentimes in the middle of winter, on a, on a hard, cold floor, his wife would find McShane just weeping and bawling in prayer, saying that there were thousands in the city of Dundee, and he knew that they did not know the Lord. Here is a pattern that starts with the biblical witness and moves all the way up through time of people who agonize and struggle in prayer. Why am I telling you about this? I'm telling you about this for this reason. As we walk through the text and we think about caring for the church, you're going to naturally think about those around you. And that's good. Think about them. Care for them. But also consider this fact. You will likely never know or meet 99% of God's church in this life. You will not be able to know their names, their families, their testimonies. You will not be able to minister to them face to face. But don't let that stop you from serving them. Don't let that stop you from caring for them. Follow Paul's example and struggle for them in prayer. What should you pray for? What should you pray for those for whom you've never seen? What should you pray for and work for for those that are in this room whose life is connected with yours? Well, there are many things. But this morning, Paul begins to move us in the right direction with these issues by telling us some of the things that he specifically is struggling for in prayer, I believe, for the Colossians themselves. And we want to follow that example. Now, some of you may be here and you may not be Christians. And you're thinking, what what does this have to do with me? 
Uh, I'm not going to struggle in prayer for people that I don't know. I'm praying to a God I don't even know. So what should you be doing this morning? Well, can, can I say that, first of all, we're glad that you're here. Uh, d- despite that we are a gathering of Christians, we never say non-Christians cannot be a part of us. So, so we're glad that you've decided to be with us. But let me just encourage you to look at the picture that is given of the Christian life and Christian community in these verses. The things that Paul seeks to establish among God's people. And ask yourself, is there, is there any other group in our society that reflects this kind of culture and priority? Specifically, as we will see, a, a distinct love for one another. And, and what I will say to you, the argument that I will make, even if it is imperfectly seen in this body, this is the goal to which we are all moving, and it pales in, in comparison to any other group. And so at the end of the message, I would ask you, having seen this vision of what the church is supposed to be like, would you like to be a part of it? So this morning, let's look to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and see how Paul talks about how he cares for the church and how as God's people we should again follow that example. He begins by first explaining the means of caring, specifically encouragement and love. What is the means by which he is caring for the church? It is He is seeking encouragement and love. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. Now, when we use the word heart, assuming we aren't speaking in a technical medical sense, you know, about left ventricles and right atria and all that, all that good jazz, uh, we often use it figuratively, don't we, to speak about the emotions. You know, I love her with all my heart. You know, I mean, that's how we talk, right? I hope, anyway. Uh, now, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, that literally, you know, at one point when the chambers are full and the, the, the blood is being oxygenated at that moment, it's, no, of course not. Again, it's figurative. We're speaking about the emotions, about, about how much we feel towards a person. But don't misunderstand that to mean how the biblical writers are meaning the word heart. It's, it's a different taxonomy, as it were. Uh, if you want to talk about feelings and emotions, they talk about bowels, okay? It's, it's a little rude, right? you, know, for, you know, frankly. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the same time, you can understand it, right? If you, you know, uh, let's stick with the love theme. If you feel Twitter-pated, where do you feel the butterflies? In your stomach, in your bowels, right? If you're nervous before a meeting, where do you feel that twisting uh, kind of pit in your stomach sensation, in your bowels? So they have their onto something here, right? Uh, how, the, how, the, how the illustration migrated up uh, a few inches, I have no idea. But the, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it speaks of the core of our being, the very essence of who we are. It involves the mind, the will, as well as the affections of our of our of our person, because it is biblic in the biblical mindset, and I think uh, we could bear this out with just a couple of case studies. It is the mind and the will that set the affections on the right things. In fact, it is the mind uh, that should uh, cause right thinking, should cause right affections, which should lead to right actions. That's biblically the framework of how the body works. And so Paul is saying, I want their hearts. I want how they think and how they view life and, 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 and in, their, in their willing and, and they're their moving towards action. I want, I want them to be encouraged there. 
the very essence of who they are. I want them to be strengthened in this way. And that's what encouragement means. It's this idea of giving comforted or being comforted or being instructed or strengthened as another comes alongside you. So Paul is saying that he is struggling to see them encouraged in their hearts. So this is not a kind of, you know, have a nice day kind of comfort. This is not kind of a pat on the back and a rub in the hair. It'll be okay. Just, just keep moving on. Now it's much deeper than that. It's much more profound than that. It's not the kind of encouragement that, that comes just because our circumstances have changed. Oh man, I owe this bill. What, what, what's going to happen? The bill is taken care of. Great. Now I'm happy again. It goes deeper beyond that. We often think, though, in those terms, don't we? If I could just get this new thing, if this part of my life could just be different, then everything would be great. And Paul says, I want, I want you to have an encouragement. I struggle that you have an encouragement that goes beyond your circumstances. A strengthening of the heart so that regardless of your circumstances, you will be centered in who you are, moving ahead in the right direction, continuing in faith to God. He is seeking to give them that level of comfort. And along with this, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, that, uh, that your hearts will be encouraged, and that you may be knit together in love, verse 2. Paul struggles for the goal of seeing believers in the church encouraged in their hearts, but also united together in love for one another. He says they are being knit together in love. Now, certainly they did not have the same kind of knitting that we think of with the needles and going different directions, you know. Um, nevertheless, the, the, the imagery, the picture is still essentially the same. And that is individual fibers being woven together into something greater and in a way that you can't just, you can't just pull apart. I mean, regardless of how you stitch together the garment, uh, and, unless you do damage to the pieces, you don't easily take it apart. You've, you've, got, to, you've got to pick and pull and snip and, 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 and pull the thing together. And Paul is so saying... We want you to be knit together. We want you to be unified as a church, but the, the, the glue that holds you together, the stitching that knits your lives into one garment is love. And again, don't be confused. Love is not merely an emotion. Biblically speaking, it's not merely sentiment. It is an affection that is joined and bore out by actions. Pastor and Professor Legan Duncan says this, Love is the deliberate, ceaseless longing for and pursuit of the loved one's welfare. Did you catch that? The deliberate, ceaseless longing for and pursuit of the loved one's welfare. What does that mean? It means love can be measured. Love can be measured. A pulse on the vibrancy of our love for one another can be taken and assessed. We can look around and discern and make a value judgment on whether or not we are loving one another. And as we think about these things, a central principle emerges, which is this. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. Encouragement, by definition, happens when someone comes alongside you. Love for one another, by definition, involves a relationship. It's more than one person. Specifically, the Christian life is meant to be lived with others in relationships that can only be formed by the gospel. Paul has, has already talked numerous times about the gospel message. And here it is this loving relationship that is formed by that. Why? Well, why would we say that? Because anybody can love their family, right? I mean, sometimes it's hard. Got that pesky big brother or little sister or whatever it is, you know. Uh, but, but anybody can, can have a loving 
family. Anybody can love their friends. But the gospel of Christ calls us to something deeper, something that, for the most part, the, the world doesn't come close to. Could you forgive and love and even adopt as part of your family the man who murdered your father in cold blood when you were five just to avoid an awkward social situation? Well, one man could. His name is Steve Saint. He forgave the Wadawi Indian Minkaye who did this very thing. Why? Because they were both brothers in the Lord. They both looked to Christ. They both believed the gospel of Christ. And their lives were knit together in a, in a kind of love the world doesn't understand. They made a movie about this a few years ago called End of the Spear, I think. And, and it's fascinating to read the behind the scenes of that filming because the, the crew went down and they were on location and uh, they were reenacting the scene when not just Steve's dad, but, but the other four missionaries were all speared to death on the river. And some of the people that were there that day, some of the, the people that were in that spearing party were, were behind the cameras uh, observing the reenactment of this terrible day in their minds. Because by and large, these people were now a, a, a Christian tribal people. And, and as the cameras began to roll and they had the artificial rain coming down and they were commencing the spears and everything, all of these Wadawi began to just weep and wail. And some of them were, 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 were tearing at the, at the leaves and trees and they didn't get their hand on. They were so overcome with grief. And everybody on the, on the set was like, what is going on? And it's like chaos. What is happening? The reason why they didn't understand it because up until that point, they thought this was a made-up story. The... The, the, the ability for, for, for these people to come in and, and to, to even risk death to tell them about a, a, a God that they had never heard of before. And then the family coming after their, their, their loved ones, their fathers, their husbands had been slaughtered needlessly to, to love them and forgive them and continue that work and even to come to adopt their family. They just thought that can't happen in real life. And yet it did. And they were blown away by the fact that it had really happened. Could you be friends with someone you've been told your whole life is the enemy, even risking your life for them? I wrote a fascinating article about how you know, South Korea, the church in South Korea, sends out something like 20,000 missionaries a year. To, to, to give some correlation there, our denomination sends out about 7,000. And, and, we, and we have tens of millions of people. They can't get into North Korea legally. And they've been told their whole life that the North Koreans are their enemies, that they should hate them. And now, though, changed by the gospel of Christ, they have love for those North Koreans. And so what have they been doing? They've been getting into China and then from China sneaking into North Korea because they're both communist countries and it's easier. So they're risking life, death. Why? Because they love their enemies. You don't find that in the rest of the world. People don't take those kinds of chances. And yet that is the very, the warp and woof of what love among God's people is supposed to look like. It comes when the gospel of Christ transforms the people of Christ. That, that, that message of Jesus being the Savior of the world, making us right with God, frees us from hate and indifference to love in ways that others can't. So as we strive for these things, encouragement and love, we should first pray for it. 
We said before that prayer should be fervent and not just for ourselves, but for Christians everywhere. But what more practically can we do? You know, I mean, it's good and right, and don't hear me trying to to suck the life out of the need for prayer. But sometimes, some of you may pray a lot, and you need to get, you know, get your rump off off the couch and actually do something too. You know what I'm saying? So, what is that going to look like next Tuesday or the following Sunday or three weeks from now? What are you going to do practically? to advance this idea of encouragement and love among God's people. Well, let me just give you one specific piece of application this morning. And it's a very simple strategy. Avoid clicks. I don't mean, you know, like Adam's family. Uh, I mean the kind of social uh, groups that we form that keep others uh, at an arm's distance. Everyone, of course, has a circle of close friends that they move in. But the gospel calls us not just to have those circles, but to move beyond those circles into ever-deepening fellowship with others. So just for us, don't stand around and talk to the same people every Sunday after the service. Move around. Find others that you don't know that well and talk to them. Find out what's going on in their life. When you attend Sunday school, don't sit by the same people every week. When we have a fellowship meal, don't sit with the same people every time intentionally be sitting elsewhere. I know some of you have your favorite seats in this auditorium. Every week you're in the same spot. Sit somewhere else. Sit in the back. I know, it's amazing, isn't it, Jerry? (laughs) The offering's probably going to go down today. Uh, Sit somewhere else. Why? Because unless you do that, how in the world do you plan to cultivate deeper fellowship and love with people other than the people you already know and love? Can't do it. And don't just engage in small talk. You may start that way, but come prepared with a word of encouragement. Hopefully just from your, not, your normal Bible reading that week. Come prepared to encourage someone's heart. Come prepared to listen to someone's struggles and to pray for them. Right there. Sunday school started and someone said, I had a bad week. Don't worry about when the teacher said, okay, listen to the other. Just take a quick 30 seconds and pray for them. I guarantee you the teacher will be okay with it. All right? Or maybe take five minutes as you excuse yourselves and go into an empty classroom. And intercede for that person. Be mindful of the needs of others. Have friends that don't look like you. You know, I, I have to say that... Um, well, well, we'll leave that. We don't have time for that. Just have friends that don't look like you, okay? Go, go beyond what's easy. Go beyond the things that, that culture and society says, yeah, you guys can be friends because you grew up in the same part of town, you have the same color skin, you make the same amount of money, and you have the same taste in clothes, therefore you can be friends. I don't want all my friends to look like me. I don't look all that good. I want different friends. I want friends that know how to fix more interesting foods and wear cooler clothes and have different music. Because that's what heaven's going to look like. I mean, if we can't enjoy that now, you know, I don't know if you're really going to like eternity, uh, loved ones, okay? God says that through his apostle Paul, that we should be seeking to encourage one another and seeking to, to be knit together in love. And we pray for that, not just for here, but for Christians around the world. But more than that, we can take practical steps to advance that ourselves. Well, we've seen that Paul is striving uh, in his care for the church, seeking to encourage them to have their hearts together in love. Why is he doing that? What is the goal? The goal of his caring is this, that they might have assurance in Christ. That they might have assurance in Christ. Why is he doing this? Verse, uh, the end of verse 2. To reach, that they might reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, Paul has piled up these adjectives to make his point. So let's try and walk through this so we can get at it. Paul says he wants them to reach uh, all the riches of full assurance. Assurance of what? A full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. What is this mystery? Paul says it's not a what, it's a who. It is Christ. Why is it so important? That we have this deep, full assurance of our knowledge of Him because, he says, in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul wants them, struggles for them to obtain this. Why? In order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And here Paul begins to tack on the problem at Corinth. He's been laying this foundation and now he begins to say, this is why I'm writing ultimately that you may not be deluded with plausible arguments. And again, we just need to remind ourselves, the Christians in Colossae were the recipients of this new message that was coming to them by people claiming to be Christians. These Either an individual or an individual with, with some followers had come in and was claiming to be Christians, and yet they were advocating new spiritual knowledge. They were telling them, Christ is great, but you need more than Him for the fullness of spiritual life. The specifics of the teaching are a little vague, because in reading a letter, we're kind of listening to half of a telephone conversation, but we can, it's clear that it's some kind of mishmash of Jewish, Jewish legalism and local pagan, pagan folk beliefs. And Paul says the danger of this belief is that it undermines the supremacy of Christ and elevates our own ability to determine our salvation and spiritual growth. I don't know about you, but I'm not smart enough to figure out who God is on my own. I'm not smart enough to determine how the world can come to know God. I need God Himself to step out of heaven into time and to write me a book that explains this is who He is. And Paul says this is what He has done, not just in His Word, but in the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. We just saw in Him dwells the fullness of God bodily. He is the exact representation of God and the perfect revelation of His character. Therefore, you don't need anything else. You don't need anything else. You don't need any other spiritual wisdom or spiritual knowledge or understanding. All that you need is found in Christ. And Paul says it doesn't matter how great the arguments sound, uh, sound, it doesn't matter how slick the talk is or how seemingly well-founded are the ideas, all that you have and all that you need is yours in Christ. Why? Because in Him are hidden all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, you know, they're offering you the fullness of spiritual life and wisdom. He says, you already have that in Christ. If there is anything to spiritual life, it is found in Him. He is the very foundation and fountain of spirituality. If you're going to know God and be a spiritual person, it will come through the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing Him. Thus Paul says to the Colossians, he wants them to come to a place where they have all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Paul says, I want you to be assured of the life which you have in Christ. I don't want you thinking these jokers are on to something. Well, I want you to have a settled conviction about the salvation you have in Christ. That He is the Son of God who took on flesh, entering this world in fulfillment of the promises of God made from the very beginning of time. That He entered this world in order to make it possible for sinners who deserve judgment from God to find forgiveness with God. That he did this by offering up his own life on the cross in place of our own. That he bore the wrath of God against our sins. That he satisfied his just and righteous fury against our rebellion and idolatry. That we might 
know God once again. That we might be in relationship with Him as our loving creators we were designed to be. He wants them to know that in dying on the cross, He did not stay dead, but was raised back to life victorious as the King above all kings and the Lord of all creation. He says, that is who you have in Christ. You don't need anything else. C.S. Lewis is famous for his numerous writings, and he used to receive letters all the time. I can barely keep up with email, let alone writing letters, but from what it seems, it seems like he pretty much answered every single letter he got, especially from children who used to write him about his Chronicles of Narnia books. One of the last letters he wrote just weeks before his death was to a little girl named Ruth. And among other things in that letter, he said to this, Dear Ruth, many thanks for your kind letter, and it was very good of you to write and tell me that you like my books, and what a good letter you write at your age. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you, and I hope that you may always do so. If you take nothing away from the book of Colossians, if you take nothing away from this sermon or from the weeks ahead, take this down and burn it into your mind and believe it. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you, and I hope you may always do so. Lewis is not promising her an easy life. Lewis is not promising her health, wealth, and prosperity. What he is saying is that spiritually, there's nothing much that's going to go wrong with you if you continue to love Jesus because in him is the fullness of spiritual life, the very treasure of wisdom and understanding and life with God. The goal of Paul's encouragement and love is that Christians will have full assurance of their life in Christ And so if we are striving for encouragement and love in others, seeking to produce full assurance of their life in Christ in them, the result of our caring will be that we will rejoice in growth. We will rejoice in their growth. Paul finishes this section with these words, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Again, Paul's not met the Colossians before. He doesn't know who they are. He he may know a couple of names, but all he knows is secondhand. And imagine this guy whom he knows well, Epaphras, showing up at the prison where Paul is locked up from where he writes this letter. And Epaphras says, Paul, I need your help because there is this problem at the church at Colossae. And you can imagine Paul being worried, caring for these people he had never met. He says, well, what's the problem? And he says, it is... It is the beginnings of false doctrine that appear to be taking root in the body. And perhaps Paul leaned closer, dragging the chain that would have been around his ankle, sitting closer to Epaphras coming in and saying, tell me about the problem. How far has it gone? As he is worried about the spread of this gangrenous anti-gospel taking root among people he loved and cared for so much. And Epaphras says, "Well, well, hardly at all actually. It, it, we're right on the, on the front edge, and yet it is, it's not widespread. I, just, I, I see the danger on the horizon and want to hold it off. He says the church is actually in good order, and people are firm in their faith. And Paul says that he rejoices at that. You, you, you can picture this man leaning back, perhaps a, a, a breath of a, a release, a, a sigh of, of satisfaction that the church has not become totally corrupt. But everything is in good order and they are firm in their faith. Good order speaks to their way of living. 
Their character was marked not by pagan, selfish, sin-driven actions of their former life, but by a godliness that is, that, is, that is part and parcel of their new life in Christ. For that's what made the difference, their faith in Christ, he says. Their faith remains firm. Faith in Christ is only what brought them into fellowship with God. It is that part that has a, continues to have a transforming effect on how they live. Paul hears of this and he rejoices that the church remains healthy and stable. And so should we. And so should we. You know, we are so quick to rejoice in our own accomplishments. We are quick to rejoice in small things like when we get to pay less taxes for a year or whether when we get a new job or we get better from an illness, our kids get an A or the local ice cream shop has a special on our favorite flavor. I mean, we rejoice about all kinds of things, don't we? And yet the question is, how often do we, do we look out and see God's people growing and healthy and stable and rejoice in that? And Paul says that is what, that is what he rejoices in. How often do we just look at one another and say, you know, I've seen them day in, day out, week in, week out, year after year, and they just continue on in the faith. Oh God, I'm so thankful for the work that you are doing in them. How often do we do that? How often do, do we see people through the lens of the gospel, either in their need or in their victory? A few years ago, there was an Episcopal pastor in Northern Virginia who decided that he could no longer, good conscience, be a part of the Episcopal church in this country. They had more or less forsaken the gospel. They lost their firmness in the faith in Christ, and therefore their lives were not in good order. You can go online, you can read about all the kinds of things, the problems that, that he had with the interactions of these people. And yet, this pastor knows at, at, its found, at the foundational level, Anglicanism is a good denomination, as it's called around the rest of the world. We call them Episcopalians here, Anglicans everywhere else. It was started by a good and godly man, Thomas Cramner. And, and, and around the world, there are still good and godly Anglicans who love the gospel and desire to see it go forth in the world. And yet the structure of the denomination is such that you have a local church and a local church and a local church and over those pastors or priests are bishops and then over those bishops originally is archbishops all the way up. So, so it's the opposite of, the, of, of our denomination. There is command and control from the top down rather than from the bottom up. And he says, I don't want these people as my spiritual leaders. So what does he do? What does he do? Does what the obvious thing, right? Calls up somebody in Africa. And wouldn't that be the first thing you'd want to do? Calls up the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in Nigeria. And he says, I know about your firmness of faith in Christ. I know about the good order of your lives. And we want to put ourselves under your spiritual authority. Well, the Episcopal Church here just went nuts. So you can't do that. That's, you know, you're tearing the church about everything else. Well, guess what? The Nigerian Archbishop said, no problem. In May of 2007, Archbishop uh, Akinola came and he appointed a local Nigerian man here in the States, Martin Menz, to serve as missionary bishop for the convocation of Anglicans in North America. Thirty-five congregations said, we no longer recognize your faith, or your godliness because it's not there. And we want our spiritual leaders to have faith in Christ and to be godly men of character. And so therefore, we're putting ourselves under their authority. Now think about, I mean, when I read that story, I wanted to cry. Think about the tragic irony of that. 
Western missionaries took the gospel to Africa where it took root and it grew and it is now flourishing. And now we have to have them come back and be missionaries to us because we have failed to hold on to the gospel in which we were trusted. We have failed to keep our faith in Christ. We have failed to to display our faith through a life of good order, of godliness. And yet, how much more should we rejoice in the faithfulness of our African brothers and sisters? That this, that this Anglican priest would be able to actually look across the globe and still find people within his denomination who had not forsaken the gospel and were continuing in faithfulness. That should cause our hearts to sing and shout for joy at the work of God. Part of caring for the church is not just taking food to people, making hospital visits, or fixing a broken car, though that is certainly part of it. But there's more to it. There is looking at one another through the lens of the gospel, rejoicing when there is growth and striving with one another to ensure that it continues. And at the end of all things in this message, the key, the key comes in treasuring Christ for the treasure that he is. The more that we know of him, the more we will be assured of the completeness of our salvation. And the more assured we are of our salvation in him, then the more stable and firm our faith will be, which will be evidenced in how we live our lives. Therefore, we should strive, we should struggle like Paul in life and in prayer to encourage one another and to be knit together with one another in love so that we can spur one another on more and more to treasure Christ above all things. Father, that is our prayer this morning, that we would look to him and to him alone. And in doing so, Father, you would continue to produce spiritual fruit in our lives. We ask all this in his name and for his sake. Amen.